So I'm hoping that you're ready to, to kind of, you know, geek out with me a little bit, egghead out a little bit, because uh, uh, I wanted to talk about the Star of Bethlehem. And uh, this has always fascinated me. You know, the star, what was the star? You know, what, how did it work? What was it? Was it anything really? Was it just a miracle? On and on and on. And uh, so I wanted to explore that a little bit. And it gets kind of interesting, and I hope you'll be interested with me, you know. A little bit of observational astronomy is necessary in order to do this. But um, as I said, it's, it's always fascinated me ever since I was a kid. And I told this story on Friday night that uh, when I was probably six or seven, Christmas Eve, looking for Santa Claus. And I wanted to stay up and I wanted to see Santa and I wanted to see the sleigh and all this. And so I would uh, get up you know, every so often and look out the window and my window faced out over the backyard and down a hill. And, and uh, at one point I got up and the moon had just risen over the, the far horizon. And as I was looking at it through the screen of my window, the light went in the shape of a cross. And I was sure that I was looking at the Star of Bethlehem, you know, and I was just so excited. That, you know, Now I can look back and say, OK, it was following the mesh of the screen. But back then it was the Star of Bethlehem, as I'd seen on so many Christmas cards, you know, with that cross shaped tail and everything. And there's just been a fascination for me. What is this story doing here? Why is it here? We've got to challenge a few things that we think we know about the Magi and about the star if we're going to come to something that maybe will help us to actually deepen our faith. But to start right off, how about a little bit Christmas trivia? How many of you know when Jesus was born? Let's start with the day. What day was Jesus born? July 27th. July 27th. <laughs> Nobody wants to say uh, December 25th, huh? All right. Okay, good. Well, then, then, then that's good. You've all read ahead. You know, most scholars, you know, all we really have to go on in terms of figuring this stuff out is what is called internal evidence. It's just whatever is in the Gospels, in those 66 books that uh, Scott has to choose from for the next one. You know, that's all we've got. There's not a whole lot else. You know, there, there's not a lot of corroborative evidence outside. So just looking at internal evidence, most scholars think that Jesus was probably born in the spring. And the biggest reason for that is that the shepherds in Luke are watching their flocks at night. And that was when, you know, the, the baby, the lambs were born and they would be more, you know, fastidious about their shepherding at that point. But, you know, we don't know. You don't know. Um, but we do know that December 25th wasn't adopted as Jesus' birthday and Christmas established until about the 6th century. And so there's a lot of time there, um, I should say the 4th century, and after um, Christianity had become the state religion of Rome. But it wasn't widely celebrated until about the 6th century. And so why December 25th? Why was that chosen? Well, in the Roman Empire, the winter solstice was a big deal. In their religious system, the solstice represented, if you know what the solstice is, it means sun stands. It's where the days that were getting shorter, now the sun stops in its path and then starts getting long, the days get longer again. So the sun is sinking, it stops, and then it starts to rise again. And, this, and the opposite happens in the summer solstice. That was a big deal because in their faith, in their religion, the sun was dying and it gets down to this place where it's almost not there anymore and then it stops and then it comes back up again. There was a big festival that lasted about five days, which was called Saturnalia, that ran from the 
1st or to the 23rd, uh, the 17th to the 23rd of December in there. And it was a big deal where they decorated the houses and they gave gifts to each other and there's lots of merrymaking. They decorated trees. They did all the sorts of things. And it was leading up until the 25th of December, which was called Dies Natalis Sol Invictus, which means the birthday of the unconquered sun. And so that was the main festival that all of this was leading up to. So what happened when suddenly Christianity becomes a state religion of Rome after Constantine and several other of his successors is that all of the pagan priests become Christian. And if they don't, then they're exiled or they get their property taken or they're killed. And all of the temples become churches and all of the festivals and holidays in the pagan system become layered over with Christian symbolism and Christian holidays. And so this became the natural place for Jesus' birth to be. And it kind of meshed with a population that was struggling with moving from one system to another. And it helped. But if you think about it, all of the traditions that we have with Christmas come from this Roman holiday. You know, the gift giving and the merrymaking and the decorating of houses and trees was part of the the experience in Roman culture, and then it moved over into Christian culture as that changed. So we don't know the day, traditionally 1225. Now what about the year? Do we know the year? If we're going to study the star, the year becomes really important that Jesus was born. Now it turns out that in the 6th century, Pope John I wanted to recalculate Easter, and he hired a monk name of uh, Dionysius Exegus, which means Dennis the Little. He was a little short guy apparently, but uh, he hired him to do the calculations, and so he calculates Easter, and it's a very complicated table, and at the same time, you know, he just threw in the fact that he hated that the calendar was still counting its years from the beginning of the reign of Diocletian, who was a second or third century Roman emperor who perpetrated one of the, the longest lasting and most systematic persecutions of the church. And so he wanted to change all that. And he said, naturally, we want to start the calendar, reset it to the day of Jesus' birth. And so he calculated that. Trouble is, he made two big errors. You know, they were, seemed small at the time. But he went from one before Christ to one Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, with no zero in between. Because in Europe at the time, zero was not considered a number. But you need zero in there astronomically. Even today, there is no zero between 1 BCE and 1 CE. But in the astronomical calendar, there is a zero. There has to be. The other thing that he messed up on was the calculation of the date of birth by four years because of the Emperor Augustus and so on and so forth. Anyway, so he was off about at least four or five years in terms of what year Jesus was born. Again, internal evidence comes to our rescue. We know that Herod had to be alive when Jesus was born because the scriptures tell us so. And Herod died in 4 BC. So most scholars believe that Jesus was probably born between 5 and 7 BCE. That's going to be important as we're trying to figure out what the star was all about. So we get to the story of the Magi. Of the four Gospels, there's only two that talk about Jesus' birth. Did you know that? That's Luke and Matthew. Luke gives us the story of the actual birth. He gives us a story of the, the manger and the inn that was too full, the, the census and the moving down to Bethlehem. He starts in Nazareth, where the, where the Holy Family was living, where Mary and Joseph were living, and takes us to Bethlehem. It's interesting, Matthew goes the other way. They're living in Bethlehem, and they 
they go to Nash, Nazareth afterwards. But um, that whole story is there, the shepherds and all of that. Matthew picks up after Jesus is born and gives us a story of the Magi. And so between the two, we get some of the birth narratives of Jesus, but we've got to combine them to get the full story. So let's read Matthew 2, starting right at verse 1. And you can follow along up on the monitors or in your insert. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him. (laughs) My, what big teeth you have, right, mom? After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Okay, that's the story. That's all we get. What is going on here? What's actually happening here? You know, who are these magi? Who are they? Well, the word in Greek is magus, and it literally means, it can mean an astrologer, it can mean a philosopher, it can be a magician, a sorcerer, uh, or just a wise man. So it can mean all those things at the same time. We know that they come from the east. What was east of Judea? Well, most of the east was the whole Parthian Empire, which at that time was a a huge rival of Rome in the east. They had everything from the Tigris and Euphrates rivers on all the way to India. They were where Iran is right now. They were Persian. They were mostly Zoroastrian in in their religion. But interestingly enough, some scholars are positing that when the northern tribes and even the southern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the tribes were exiled, where were they pulled to? This very region. Daniel is one of the, uh, the uh, Israelites who is pulled into Babylon and becomes one of these wise men. He becomes a Magi. And so the idea is that maybe these Magi, maybe these wise men were descendants of those lost tribes and were all those centuries looking for the herald, the star that was going to proclaim the, the birth of their king. We don't know, but they were from that area and they were scientists, they were astronomers, they were astrologers, they were the ones who advised the rulers at that time. Were they kings? You, no matter what the song says, it's unlikely that they were kings. Um, and it's not mentioned in the scriptures here at all. But traditionally, 
the uh, the European tradition was that yes, they were kings and they represented the three continents that were in the area. So one was from Europe, one was from Asia, and one was from Africa, and they had the skin tones of those various races as well. They even gave them names. There was Melchior, and there was Gaspar and Balthazar, and each one of them was responsible for bringing the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. But were there really three? Again, that's not mentioned. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates 12 magi instead of three. But since there were three gifts and three is the perfect number, that has been the tradition that we have celebrated. So, the star of Bethlehem. What about, oh, and what about these gifts? And, and, uh, and what were these magi? We're trying to figure out who they are. Now, what are they? Well, we said they're astronomers and they're astrologers, and that might sound strange to you, astrology, but in the ancient world, astrology and astronomy were basically the same thing. They both used the exact same science that was known to the ancient world. Astrology took a step further and had the idea that the stars were there for signs and seasons, as it says in Genesis, that were not like horoscopes and not individual prognostication, but they were there to show where the, the, the sweep of nations were going. Where, where, where kings were moving their countries and their armies. And so there was significance. The line was as above, so below, that there was a connection, that the stars were heralding things. And the ancient people believed this, not to the individual level that the Greeks took it later with a horoscope, but at this macro level. And so this is what you see embedded in scripture, is that belief even though I know many of you coming from an evangelical background, your skin is crawling right now because you know, astrology is, is occultism and it's, and it's evil. But just understand, this was common practice, not in the way we're doing it, but in this macro level. So just kind of let that sit for a second. There are layers of meaning here. Even the gifts themselves have meaning and symbolism to them. Gold represented the king. As they gave gold to Jesus, they're recognizing him as king with authority, with virtue. The frankincense was a resin of a tree that was pounded into a powder and used typically as incense in the temple. And so they are recognizing Jesus as priest, his spirituality, his divinity, his prayer. And when they give the myrrh, the myrrh was another resin that was rendered into an oil that was used for anointing. The kings and the prophets were anointed with this oil. The dead were anointed with this oil. And so as they give him the myrrh, they're recognizing him as prophet, as healer. And they're also recognizing the suffering and the death that he was going to need to endure. All of these layers of meaning are here in the details that we have. And it's starting to paint this beautiful picture or creating this mosaic And so the whole genesis of this is the star. What is this star? Well, the first thing you need to understand again in the ancient world again is that everything was a star. If it looked like a star, it was a star. Whether it was a star, whether it was a planet, whether it was a comet, whether it was a meteor or a meteorite, it was a star. They called everything a star. So that doesn't help us a lot. So this star that behaves so unstar-like, you know, going before following after, standing over, all these things that stars don't do. Was that a miracle? Was that a miracle star that God created just for the purpose? It's possible. And if that's the case, then there's not going to be any evidence for it. There's nothing that we're going to be able to find. It was something unique in history that God did at this point. Or 
Many have said, was it a comet? If it was a meteor that happens too fast, that's not going to really lead them anywhere. This journey of theirs could have taken as much as 10 months to a year to accomplish, depending on conditions and whatnot. They're also crossing the frontier from the Parthian Empire to the Roman Empire. It was a dangerous journey to take. So probably not a meteor. A comet, maybe. That can hang in the sky for some time. How about a supernova that has been um, posited as well? But if it was any of those, everybody would have seen it, right? That would have been a spectacular light show in the sky. But Herod hasn't seen it. His whole court hasn't seen it. They don't know what's going on until the Magi come and start to ask them questions. So the likelihood that it was anything really spectacular is probably not what's going on here. So what's the next thing we can look at? Well, how about a conjunction of planets? All right, that's kind of promising. You get a couple of planets that that, uh, get really close to each other and uh, it creates a brighter light in the sky. So is there any evidence for a conjunction of planets? Now, some of you may be wondering, how in the world can we know that 2,000 years later, what the stars were like or what was going on with the planets 2,000 years ago? That would be a really good question. The universe is like a gigantic clock. It runs forward, and because you can see the movement forward, you can run it backward. And that's exactly what even the ancients were able to do. They were able to calculate things that were going to happen years in advance, and they could run the clock backward. We do it with tables and charts, and of course now we do it with computers. So you can take the star field, you can take all the movements of the planets, you can put that in, you can calculate it, and you can run it backward and forward. And so we're just running the clock backward to a certain point in time and saying, what actually happened? And astronomers have painstakingly gone through this to try to figure out. And yes, you know, there were. There was a, uh, a conjunction of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in 6 BC that arose in Pisces. Trouble is, Pisces doesn't have any affiliation with Israel. And that means there's just another explanation here. How, what the heck? You know, the 12 signs of the zodiac that you are familiar with represent 12 constellations. And just geek out with me for just a second here. If you take our solar system, you've got nine planets circling the sun, right? They're all in the same plane, as if they were marbles laying on a table, right? And then that is inside the entire star field. Imagine that solar system inside a beach ball. And the beach ball has all of the stars affixed on it. The stars are moving too, but they move so slow because they're so far away. In a human lifetime, they appear fixed. And so they're fixed. That's called the celestial sphere. If you extend the plane of the solar system out so that it touches the sphere, it creates a circle, which is a celestial equator. There are 12 constellations equidistant around that celestial equator. Those are the signs of the zodiac, the ones you're familiar with, right? So every time the sun, we're looking at the sun, there is a constellation behind it. And as we go around the sun, the constellations change. But the sun blots out the constellation, right? Except right at dawn when it's rising, what it rises into is that constellation of the month and it takes 12 months for us to go around the cycle hopefully you sort of followed that but this is a conjunction of planets that rose in the evening or in the early morning into Pisces now all of these ancient peoples had affiliations with these different signs of the zodiac 
Israel was affiliated with Leo, which was the lion of the tribe of Judah. You probably heard that. And also associated with Aries, but not with Pisces. So this conjunction of the planets probably wouldn't have told the Magi anything about Israel if they were looking at that. And so we move on. There was a triple um, conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn three times in 7 BC, but that also wasn't in anything that was connected to Israel. Then in 3 BC, there was a really interesting light show up there. Venus and Jupiter con, uh, uh, conjoined, and they appeared in August, and then they continued to move through the constellations. Venus went behind the sun, and so just Jupiter is continuing on. And then in December, um, Venus joined Jupiter again. And so they're saying, okay, maybe they saw the first conjunction, they followed it to the west, and then when they got to Judea and Bethlehem, Venus joined and it, it happened again. And so they knew they were in the right spot. Okay, sounds like it's a possibility. But these planetary conjunctions don't explain this unstar-like behavior that is described in Matthew's Gospel. You know, what about this going before? How does a star go before? And how does it stop and stand over the place where the child was? These are the things we need to take a look at. Here's where we can move into astrology to see if there was an astrological sign that the Magi would have been looking at. And here would have been completely invisible to anybody who wasn't initiated into what this is all about. And we already talked about astrology in the Bible, so hopefully that's not messing with your head too much. But there were cyclical phases of these planets that the astronomers and astrologers recognized. And it's interesting that the language in Matthew is completely connected to and describing two of those phases. Where you look here and it says in verse 9, Oh, go and search carefully, child, when you have found him, report after hearing that they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east. In the east there is a Greek phrase, ente anatole, and it means in the east, or it's been translated in the east, but what it literally means is in its rising. And the rising is a rising from behind the sun, and it's a heliacal um, rising and I don't know that it's important for you to understand all this, but understand that it's a technical term, that it rose and it rose into Leo, which is the sign of Judah. And so at that point, they would have known something is going on. Jupiter, which is understood as the king, makes its rising into Leo. And then at that time, it moves to the west. And they could have followed that to the west, but they would have already known to go to Judah. And when they get to Judah, they would go to Jerusalem because they were looking for a king. They go to the capital, right? And then the king is the one who sends them to Bethlehem. And at this time, something else happens. Jupiter went retrograde. And it's like cars in a circular race. You know, when they lap each other. Have you ever passed a car on the freeway? And it looks like it's going forward. And then as you come up to it going a little bit faster, it slows down and it looks like it stops and then it looks like it's going backwards. This is literally what happens when planets lap each other. So as you're watching Jupiter go forward to the west, suddenly it slows down, it stops, and it looks like it's going backwards. So what they're saying is when they got to Jerusalem, when they were redirected to Bethlehem, the star is going before them, moving westward, and it's landing in Aries now, which is also connected with, with Judea, and then it stops and they knew that they were in the right place, and they find 
the child. You know, is any of this stuff true? I have no idea. The, the, the star maps tell us that this actually happened in April of 6 BC, and then the, the retrograde started in December 19th of, this, of, of, this, of the same year. So it happened astronomically. Is that what happened to the Magi? I don't know. But to me, these things are fascinating. I don't know if all of that stuff just glazed you out, you know. But for me, it deepens my faith. It helps me to understand that these scriptures are describing something that can be technically true. But even if it's not, what is the deeper significance? What was really guiding these magi? What was taken? Because there were other wise men, there were other astrologers, astronomers, who would have seen the same signs, but they didn't make the dangerous trip. They didn't go try to find a king. So what was really guiding these magi? Is it just because they were possibly Jewish descendants? It's possible. But there were people who were genuinely looking for a better world, genuinely looking for a king or a prophet who could usher in a time that was going to change the face of humanity and the way that we live together. Because what else prepared them to accept a poor child when they were looking for a king? There's a theme in the Gospels, right? Jesus is always talking about the fact that faith and knowing God is not the same thing as religious purity, religious pedigree, with theological understanding or learning. They are two separate things. And when he tells stories, he's trying to make this distinction clear to everybody. When he talks about the Good Samaritan, he's trying to point out that this Samaritan, this person who stood wildly outside the law, was the one who understood and recognized his neighbor and recognized his God. This is something that the Jews weren't really ready to accept. They were more exclusionary than that. The centurion, the Roman centurion, in Matthew 8 Jesus is amazed by him. How many times is Jesus amazed in the scriptures? Not very often. He's amazed at this Roman because he says his faith is unequaled in all of Israel. He doesn't know their ways. He's not operating under those principles. And yet he believes and he trusts in a way that his own countrymen were not doing. And then there's these magi, right? these Eastern Gentiles, or even if they were Jews or descendants of Jews, they had been assumed, assimilated into this culture. They weren't following the same ways that their brethren were following who stayed behind. And yet they are the first to recognize Jesus. They're the first ones. Even the Lucan shepherds are sometimes posited as being more wise men because shepherds don't typically watch their flocks at night, but the planets moving against the star field were called wanderers in Greek. They were wandering stars, and the astronomers were literally called shepherds who watched the wanderers. So is that code for the same thing? Is Luke telling us the same story as Matthew? We'll never know. Just more mind candy to think about. You know? When you think about the story of Christmas... The story of Christmas is the story of the highly improbable, the nearly impossible. It's a story of of things happening that couldn't happen and people reacting in ways that they you can't imagine that they would, and yet there it is. And I think what the writers of Scripture are telling us is that if we're not prepared 
to see Jesus as Jesus is, we're going to miss him. We're going to miss the whole thing because we're looking for something else. There's a great song by James Taylor. Maybe you've heard it, Home by Another Way. It's, it's great. You know, at the chorus he's singing, Warned in a dream of King Herod's scheme, they went home by another way. You know, maybe you and me can be wise guys. Maybe me and you can be wise guys too and go home by another way. You know, isn't that the question? Can me and you be wise guys too? Can we take a cue from these wise men and have them help us not to miss what's going on this Christmas? We talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus who breaks down so many times in simple sayings, this path to God, this, this way to, to kingdom. And when he says to ask and seek and knock, and it sounds like just three ways of saying sort of the same thing to our ears in English, what he's giving us is this three-step process that will take us deeper into God's territory and land us in kingdom. Because when he says ask, the word there is selu, which is more like an intense interrogation. It's like selah, it's the same root, which is clearing the space and waiting intently for the connection to happen in silence and in expectation of this event to happen. It talks about desire. It talks about a longing and a craving. And so when you connect that to what's happening with the, with the Magi, you realize that the star is the symbol of their desire, this longing, this craving, this inclining toward for centuries, generations of Magi, longing clearing the space, inclining toward, scouring the heavens, watching for these conjunctions that sometimes only happened in a flash between the time that they rose and the time that the sun came after and blotted it all out again. Their fastidiousness, their attention to detail was incredible. It's their desire that was driving this, looking for and longing for finding God, finding this new way to live, this leader who was going to bring this new order. And then there is Seek, Bea in Aramaic. And this is the journey. It's a diligent seeking from inside to outside. It implies movement. It implies effort. There are things that we need to absolutely do. The journey of the Magi is the action. They had to set out. We have to set out. We have to do something different than we've always done to persevere, to demonstrate our faith by simply moving out and acting as if something is already true, even if we don't have the evidence to support. And then finally, to knock, kosh in, in Aramaic. Literally means to sound a note or to pound a tent peg. But what it is referring to is realizing something creating an actual space in which something can happen, creating a note that vibrates, that others can hear. It's something that becomes manifested. It becomes real. The gifts of the Magi are real. And the gifts are indicative of their surrender. They had to surrender. They had to let go of their expectations. The last thing that they were clinging to, they had to submit to something completely different, or they would walk on by that poor home in favor of something that looked like what they thought they were after. And if you think about the, the main heroes of faith in the scripture, they all have the same process. Think about Moses. Moses is called by God 
out of the Midian, right? To come back. He has to take the journey back. And at the end of all of his striving with the nation of Israel, he has to submit. He has to surrender the actual promised land, right? In order for his people to move forward. Abraham before him makes the journey from Haran down to Canaan. But he doesn't become a man of faith until he surrenders his own son, Isaac, the son of promise, the son that was supposed to make all of the promises come true. When he surrenders it, he becomes a man of faith. When Moses surrenders his own life and the promised land, he becomes a man of faith. Solomon, several centuries later, has to surrender his wisdom, the last thing he's clinging to, in order to be able to actually see God. And here are the Magi, with whatever they started off with, believing that this king was going to be like, going to the capital city first, going to the king and his court first. What in the world prepared them for Bethlehem? What prepared them for this, probably a toddler by the time they got there, not an infant in a manger, but a toddler? What prepared them to see this young, speechless child, this poor child, as the king for which they sought? Not only that, the king for which they sought for hundreds of years. What in the world prepared them to be able to do that? To release their expectation, their image of royalty as something spectacular and see it here in the face of this child. The Magi set out to find a king and a priest and a prophet and they found this poor speechless child instead. The promise of their star was still unformed. It hadn't taken root yet. It was unrecognizable as what they were setting out to find. And yet they were able to see through their expectations, see through their biases, surrender and trust, to kneel down to worship and to pour out their gifts. For us, we set out to find our God, don't we? We set, we set out to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And yet every time we're presented with the infant, we're presented with the child, we're presented with our promise still unformed, still unrecognizable, still incomplete. Because at every turn we never really get the whole answer, do we? We want the answer, in quotation marks. We want to know that certainty. But what we generally get are better and better questions to ask. And yet, even though the intellect is not satisfied, if we persist and we move through, more and more that heart connection starts to let us know, yes, we're in the right spot. Yes, the star has stopped and stood over the place where we are. Can we, like the Magi, learn to see through appearances, to trust in unexpected places? Christmas is the improbable promise of our star that is still unformed in our lives. Because our God is an unassuming God, a humble God. There's a line that James Thurber wrote in his short story, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and it's right there in your inserts. Beautiful things don't ask for attention. I love that. Beautiful things 
don't ask for attention. They don't need to. The truly beautiful thing is complete. It's whole in itself. It continues to be what it is regardless of what is happening around, regardless of whether someone is watching or someone is not. The beautiful thing continues to be beautiful. God is like that. God doesn't ask for our attention, doesn't demand our attention. God is just always present beautifully. And I think our ability, like the Magi's ability, to see that beauty, to recognize that beauty as it is, is what makes us beautiful too. Like breeds like. Can we become more and more beautiful in the way that Jesus is beautiful so that we see the beauty in him even as Isaiah tells us that there is no beauty in him that we would be attracted to him not the kind that we're thinking about not the kind that we're looking for not the kind that we imagine but if he were here right now that we would see that intrinsic beauty that we would be moved as the Magi were moved to unfurl our gifts to let flow our worship. If you think about it, what is truer, what is more beautiful than the light in a child's eyes? We were at a Christmas party last night and there were four little kids running around. One of them was Jamie's. And the light in their eyes and the squeals, it was just amazing to watch them run. You know, and amazing to watch the, the joy that they were taking in the smallest things. When Frank brought out the ice cream cake, you would have thought that he brought out Fort Knox. I don't know. It was amazing. You know, that light, that beauty. So, of course, every time that we encounter our God, we're going to be encountering the infant. We're going to be encountering the child. How could it be anything other than that? That pure joy, that pure presence that pure wonder and connection. We assume it's going to be something else, but it's not. Jesus is here to tell us over and over the Christmas story. The Magi are trying to pound it through our heads that it's going to look this way. And if you are prepared, you will see through all of that and realize, of course we're always going to find our God as a child. Why would we expect any other form given what we know about Jesus, given what we know about our own lives. And every time we meet our God is Christmas morning and the babe is in a manger and we are the Magi. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of this. Thank you for these scriptures, these books that have impossibly, improbably weathered 2,000 years of history that has taken out so much of the ancient world and yet here they are intact for us to read through. Help us to read with your eyes. Help us to feel with your heart. Help us to understand what these wonderful stories are are telling us at the deeper level how we can apprehend what is really important in this life, how we can walk more closely with you, 
this way that takes us to kingdom. That's what we want. This Christmas, help us to see through all of the noise, all of the trappings, even as we deeply immerse ourselves in them, but to see through them as transparent as glass what is really going on in your kingdom and in the movement of your spirit in our lives. That's what we want. We want to have all of that together in one place as we celebrate with our families and our friends and as we move through these holidays that we always see you, the child, in front of us, leading us on and helping us to celebrate in the deepest possible way. Thank you, Father, for your love and everything that you give us. Thank you for loving us first so that we can scamper after. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.